Well, I don't know of a more aggressive group of people than high schoolers at the ball game where their team is playing their arch rivals. At least when I was in a high school, we were very aggressive and we were not particularly charitable. We were the Princeton Tigers. Our arch rivals were the Bluefield Beavers. And so we would start our aggression with gentle taunts like this. All for one and one for all. Let's all do the beaver call. (laughs) Now imagine a thousand people making that face. As things heated up, a little bit, we would move to this one. Queen's song had just been released, and so we changed the words. You know it, don't you? We will, we will stomp you. A thousand feet banging on metal bleachers. Can you imagine the sound? And then finally, there was this one. When we were at our most aggressive, now I have to give you one more piece of information before I give you this one. Just down and across the street from our high school was the town's oldest mortuary, funeral home established in the 1850s by a family with the last name of Seaver. You know where I'm going with this one, don't you? The closer we got to winning, the more certain victory looked for us, we shouted, send the beavers down to Seavers. Go, go, go. Kill them. Louder and louder we shouted. The adrenaline kicked in. The intensity ratcheted up. The determination to defeat, to throw them off their game, to make sure they did not regain their focus. Now listen. We would not be wrong to picture our lives as believers in Christ a little like these games. We have an arch rival. Scripture calls him your adversary, the devil. Our enemy wants to shake us, to rattle us, to make us lose our focus on Christ and faithfulness to him. And he doesn't want to just throw us off our game. Instead, instead, Scripture says that his goal is to devour us. And so the game is on, so to speak. Only it isn't a game, is it? Because it has eternal consequences. Our enemy is coming against us, jeering, taunting, with various trials, mocking our faith, hoping we will abandon it. But in the midst of all the trials that you and I face, for our faith in Christ, we must stay focused on faithful obedience. In the midst of all the trials that you and I will face because of our faith in Christ, we must stay focused on faithful obedience And that's what we'll talk about this morning as we return once again to the first letter of Peter, chapter 1. 
If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to take those now and turn in that place, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And when you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, this is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, bless now your word. We pray. We need you. Oh, we need you. Lord, in the power of your spirit, to know your word, to believe your word, to embrace it in our lives, every promise, every command. Bless us now as we come to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm glad that we're looking at this verse on trials when we are just one week away from Holy Week. A week that must have required Jesus' most intense focus in order that he might finish well, in order that he might stay faithfully obedient as he approached the ultimate trial, the cross. Scripture says that Jesus set his face like flint, like a stone determined to go to Jerusalem and to the cross. It's a week that must have required Jesus to block out the thunderous taunts of the enemy that would cause him to turn away and give up in defeat. You know, I like to think that Jesus drowned out those thunderous taunts by singing the songs that he himself had inspired. And perhaps Jesus inspired those psalms in his word so that when he came to this watershed moment in all of human history that he knew was coming, so that when he was at his weakest, he could sing their truth more loudly than the stomping and the taunting of the enemy. And find strength in their truth. Songs like Psalm 22. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Followed by, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. How many times did Jesus sing this one in the week before the cross? On the way to the cross, while carrying the cross, while being nailed to the cross? Did he defeat his enemy by singing this song? I don't know. But with Christ in mind, look with me again at verse 6. You have been grieved by various trials. Of course, this topic of the taunting trials of Satan, it's too big for just one sermon. We could look at several characteristics of trials that we will face in this world because of our faith in Christ, but this morning... We have time to look at only two. And that first characteristic of the trials we face are that they are inevitable. They are inevitable. And secondly, they are faith-based. So first, they are inevitable. We just read in verse 6. Look again there. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't know about you, but when I hear those words or read those words, if necessary, I hold out just a little bit of hope for myself. Maybe the if here is conditional. Maybe I'll get off the trial hook. Maybe in my case, a trial won't be necessary. Do you kind of hold out that hope? When you hear, if necessary, well, it gives me no joy to rob you of that hope, to rob myself of it. But I must tell you that the word if used here, according to the best Greek lexicon, in all all tenses, all tenses, expresses a condition thought of as real or denotes assumptions relating to what has already happened. Simply put, the if here does not mean maybe not. Instead, it means certainly so. Satan uses this word if when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. You see, Jesus' identity is not in question. There is no possibility that Jesus is not the Son of God. Satan knows that he is the Son of God, and that's why he's tempting Jesus to act outside of and against his identity, to give up his plan so that perhaps Jesus will not go to the cross and thereby crush and utterly defeat him. So, if here does not mean maybe not, It means certainly so. And then there's this word necessary. It denotes that which in a given moment seems to be 
inevitable. And so if I might put these words, if necessary, together. There is no way it is not necessary that you and I will be grieved by various trials. They are inevitable. Samuel Rutherford. You know how I love him. That great 17th century Scottish Puritan pastor was intimately acquainted with trials. And his letters that we love to read, his letters that hundreds of years later still inspire and encourage us were written predominantly while he was in prison for his faith. Rutherford writes this, The greatest temptation out of hell is to live without trials. Faith grows more with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. Listen, you cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. You cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. But still, our soft nature would have heaven coming to our bedside when we're sleeping and lying down with us that we might go to heaven in warm clothes. But all that came there found wet feet by the way and sharp storms and found twos and fro's and ups and downs and many enemies by the way. Trials are inevitable. And so I would counsel you and me this morning not to dread the trials, not to seek to avoid them, but to hope or to hope that we might be the exception to the rule. No, expect them to come and prepare for them to come. When Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, his disciples had no conception, no idea that that cross meant the cross that Jesus would die on. They didn't see it coming. When he went to the cross, they couldn't believe he was going to the cross. They were so unprepared for that trial that they abandoned him while he hung there. All but John. They hadn't prepared. They hadn't huddled and said, game time, guys. This is what we've been training for, strategizing for, waiting for. Let's go. Fight. Win. No. They were shaken. They lost their focus. They were not faithful. And so they fled. They were not prepared. You and I must be prepared for the inevitable trials that will come. We must not fear them because Christ comes with those trials. If I might quote Rutherford one more time. Crosses form us into Christ's image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for glory. Oh, what I owe to the file, hammer, and furnace. Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. Is that good news? 
Lay all your loads by faith on Christ. Ease yourself. Let him bear all. He can, he does, and he will bear you. Whether God comes with a rod or a crown, he comes with himself. Trials are inevitable, but we get Christ with them. And besides the only way to avoid these kinds of trials, it's to give up your faith. Who would want to do that? Jesus asks, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Why would you want to gain the world, its favor, its fame, its fortune, and lose your soul, lose Christ? You don't. So keep your focus. Remain faithful. Know that Christ will be with you through the inevitable trials that will come your way. And you're going to look more like him on the other side. Secondly, second characteristic of trials is that they are faith-based. Sometimes when we look at this passage, we use trials and suffering synonymously. And by suffering, we often think of physical illness. We think of tragedy of some kind or the other. And those things certainly come upon us because we live in a broken world. People are broken. Creation is broken. It's all broken. And though this kind of suffering is terrible, it's not mostly what Peter has in mind when he writes these verses. Peter's talking about a very specific kind of trial. He's talking about the trials that come to these believers, that come to all believers because of their faith in Christ. And more than just their personal faith in Christ, they face these trials because of their insistence that Christ alone is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. The pantheon of Roman gods, they are not Lord. Christ and Christ alone is Lord and King. And that faith and that insistence put them in conflict with their culture. They were disruptive in that they would not just go along with the culture and whatever its current agenda might be. They would not fit in. They would not play the game. And so, the trials. They were canceled, ostracized, ridiculed, hated. Their businesses were boycotted, true story, and often shut down. The similarities are similarly or scarily similar to our own woke, liberal, progressive culture. And guess what? I'm not going to take one more breath that I will never get back talking any more about that. It wearies me. You know our culture. You live in it. Instead, I'm going to take us again to the cross. To demonstrate that it was the faith of Christ that was under attack. And please understand this. The human nature of Christ 
required faith. The human nature of Christ required faith. Faith to see the other side of the cross. Faith to see the other side of the suffering. Faith to see the joy that was set before him. The bloodthirsty cheers were the loudest. And the hope the greatest as Jesus was at his weakest with the hope that Jesus' faith would be defeated. Follow with me these attacks on his faith. They hung a sign over the cross of Jesus. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The Jews went to the governor, Pilate, who said the sign should be placed there. And they said to him, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. You see, it was his faith that was being ridiculed. He believed that he was the king of the Jews, but he was not the king of the Jews. While he was on the cross, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. They derided his faith. Apparently you are not the Son of God because the temple still stands and you hang there dying. The chief priests, Scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Ah, how Satan hoped that taunt would be effective. Come on down. Off the cross, please. Abandon your mission so that no one will be saved. You see, his faith that he is the Savior for all kinds of people being mocked. They said he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And now the cruelest blow. Ridiculing the eternally intimate, loving relationship Christ had with his father. Now, Look at you. He couldn't possibly love you. You're mistaken. You see, it's the faith of Christ that's under attack. What he believes about his identity. What he believes about God the Father and the relationship he has with him. What he believes about why he came to this earth. The trial of the cross was the attack on the faith of Christ. Charles Spurgeon writes, Men made faces at him before whom angels veil their faces and adore. The basest signs of disgrace which disdain could devise were maliciously cast at him. And so it's the roar of the crowd and the stomping of the feet. Death is drawing closer and the ridicule increases. When he was the weakest, the ridicule was the loudest. 
to what end? That Christ would lose his focus. That Christ would abandon his faithful obedience. Here's the good news. The taunts didn't work, did they? Christ's faith never wavered. Because of that faith, he did not succumb to the temptations of Jesus at the outset of his ministry, nor did he give in to the temptation at the last to call 10,000 angels to come and rescue him from the cross. Because he saw the joy of the other side. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Focused, faith could see to the other side of the trial. Focused faith enabled Christ to faithfully obey in the midst of the trial. Now listen, in the next chapter over in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. The world was at the cross of Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, priests, soldiers, all categories of people were there. They were all shouting their derision at Jesus. And so it is and will be for you and for me. It's our faith in Christ because of it that we'll suffer trials. The world will mock us. They will deride us. They will thunder at us. Because we believe Christ to be the Son of God. Because we believe His exclusive claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. Because we believe that through Christ, we can have an intimate, loving relationship with God our Father. Because we believe that we are greatly loved sons and daughters of the living God. You see, our faith is always in the crosshair of trials. Satan intends to destroy that faith through trials. God intends to strengthen it. Peter writes in verse 7, So that your tested faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. James writes in chapter 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What Satan intends for evil, God means for our good. Is that good news? Don't let the trials frighten you. Let's drown out the taunts of the trials by saying, by singing, by shouting out the truth 
of the word of God. Let's claim, lay claim to our identity through that word. I am a greatly loved child of God. This trial can only make me more like Christ. Let's have focused faith so that we might faithfully obey in the midst of inevitable trials. Let's have focused faith to see the other side of the trial. Joy awaits. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes of faith to see, to see the joy that awaits us. Give us eyes to see trials for what they truly are. Satan's weapon against us, but your vehicle for good in our lives to make us more and more like Christ. What better thing could we experience in our lives than to know you, Lord Jesus, more better, more, more, more dearly, and to look more and more like you. Through faith, accomplish that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.